your bowel is a fish tank or a tube of fish tanks. And as you go along, the microbiome changes. The silt at the bottom is you want to let that out at regular intervals, probably once a day, maybe even twice a day. Faster you let out that silt, you're also letting out your good and bad bacteria. Theoretically, someone who's pooping three or four times a day needs more probiotic input from hopefully fermented foods with mm -hmm. prebiotic digestible fiber, or if it's from probiotics and prebiotics themselves. Welcome to Your Grade with your host, Unique Hammond. I created this space for those seeking inspiration along their healing path. One of the things I learned on my own journey is that healing my body took healing my relationship with my body, with my emotional and spiritual body as well. Since I was a young girl, I've always been on the search for great doctors and healers. I was raised to be weary of the medical establishment. And yet, I found myself undeniably drawn to it, possibly foreshadowing for the journey that would lay ahead. My experience with doctors and healers is somewhat sorted. As when I was healthy, it was all high five and roses. But when I started sliding, the doctors and healers I was seeing fumbled me around like a hot potato. No answers, tons of testing, supplements, and question marks. Not an uncommon story for those with autoimmune. I saw a lot of medical doctors and functional practitioners along my path. Nobody could help me. And ultimately, I was stuck with a fistful of prescriptions. So I denied all treatment and decided to pave my own way with diet and lifestyle. Things worked out well for me, as you know. I put my Crohn's into remission naturally and have stayed in remission for the past seven plus years. And I plan to stay in remission for the rest of my life by treating my body with the utmost respect and feeding it the best information possible. With all that said, I still have a deep appreciation for doctors who are doing it differently and using the mighty prescription pad as a last ditch effort. I am truly excited to see doctors like Dr. Gillette prescribing diet, working out, sleep, and a spiritual or faith-based practice as part of their approach. I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. Kyle Gillette. Dr. Kyle Gillette is dual board certified in family medicine and obesity medicine, holding degrees in critical thinking, biology, chemistry, and business. Hello, Dr. Gillette. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Your Great Podcast. I have been following you and I just love the information that you've been putting out into the world and your six pillars of health. So thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be on. What are your six pillars of health? Yeah. So the six are diet and exercise as the first two. Those are highly individualized, especially with diet. And the next four, I used alliteration, so four different S's. There is stress, sleep, sunlight, and spirit, or spiritual. So stress is pretty self-explanatory. However, it also includes mindfulness or meditation. And there is crossover between the pillars as well. Sleep, that includes both quality and quantity of sleep and timing of sleep. As far as spirit, that's very personal. I always tell people, you know, even if you don't consider yourself spiritual, I don't think I'm particularly religious. I, I believe in God personally, but even if you don't, it's just where on Maslow's hierarchy of needs you are. 
And what do you think your purpose is in life? Because at the end of the day, even if you have good physical and mental health, it depends on kind of just like, uh, well, why do you think you're here for whatever reason? And everybody has to have a belief because there's no way to prove that. It's interesting that we, we have ways to prove almost everything with different trials and such, but no way to prove that one. Not at all. And I think it's really, it is personal, you know, why we feel we're here. Like I, I have a very deep drive to help others and didn't really know that was my calling until much later in life. So how did you know it was your calling to help others? Yeah, I think it was kind of a slow calling. When I was, uh, when I was growing up, I saw my dad take care of his patients. He's a family doctor. And I noticed that he was very good friends with them. And he did a lot to take care of for them through lots of difficult illnesses and praying for his patients was one of the things that they emphasized. The group that he still practices with that he's been with for several decades. I also practice there a little bit as well. And that's one of the unique things is that it's a faith-based group, whatever um, that is. And it's interesting that lots of people enjoy being prayed for. And there is actual evidence and studies that have been done, double blind studies, in fact, about prayer for hospital patients. So they like randomly assign groups for chaplains to pray for or whatever. It's kind of interesting. And the evidence is kind of a little all over the place for that. But essentially, I, I noted that and I thought about, well, do I want to do missions? Do I want to help people? And missions, the way I see it, it's just kind of everywhere. You know, it's, you don't really go somewhere to do it. It's just being able to being able and willing to talk about it both privately and publicly. And I think there is something incredibly beautiful about prayer, honestly. In my time when I was very sick, I spent a lot of time sitting in that energy and in that space of prayer for my own physical body and then ultimately for others' physical body and spirit as well. Because I don't see my healing journey as just the healing of my physical body. It really was the healing of my emotional and spiritual body as well it was all of them together. So I really resonate with that in your practice of, of really bringing it all together because I think so much of medicine is focused on the physical body and the cellular body, not, not the entire human. So to see your practice is both refreshing and inspiring. I'd love to talk about the diet part to start. So what is your approach to diet? My approach to diet with patients is finding out a couple different. One thing is just what they like to do. And another thing is what they are currently doing. So when I write my nutrition prescriptions, I like to work with an, I, I call it an interdisciplinary team. Really, it's working with dietitians, nutritionists, health coaches, et cetera, et cetera, and the patient themselves. Some people like doing the, I guess, old school. Is it old school at this point to do a fitness tracker app like Chronometer or something like that? I guess so. Yeah. And then some people also do diet recalls, but a moment in time when their diet is as normal as possible and then identifying things in there that they might react poorly or well to. So some people tolerate high amounts of FODMAPs or uh, lectins or oxalates. And there's lots of like different little niches of things that are tolerated well or not well, depending on the individual. There is tests and things that you can do to find these out, but a lot of it is through biofeedback and people have found this in the form of uh, exclusionary diets. So whether it's a carnivore diet or a vegan diet or a whole 30 diet or an AIP autoimmune paleo protocol diet, all of these are essentially different exclusion diets. And when you come off of them, you add back in things and depending on how you feel, 
you can tell from that if that is right for you. Do you see that sitting on one of these diets ultimately is a good thing or is the goal to expand out from the starting point? So let's just say you do an uh, elimination diet, which all of these programs that you've talked about have their own eliminations, right? Is it finding the right protocol for the person for their wellness or is it ultimately the desire to kind of, like I said, expand it out from there? The way I see it, the goal is to expand it from there. Okay. Now, there are some foods and the way I see it, food, there's no dichotomy. Foods are neither good nor evil. You know, a food or anything, whether it's natural or synthetic, doesn't have inherent goodness or evilness. But some of them are definitely, especially in high quantities, hard to tolerate for many people or almost everyone. But the way I see it is I would personally want to be able to eat a wide variety of foods in moderation. So I would not want to, I've done Whole30 myself, extremely difficult. I would not want to be on a very exclusive diet regardless of the reason to be on it. Some people do need to be on um, relatively exclusive diets and everyone should obviously talk to their doctor and dietitian and health coach, et cetera, et cetera, about their diet. But that's my goal is to be able to eat as many things as possible in healthy quantities. Mm -hmm. okay. You talked about oxalates, which is not a, an area. It's showing up more and more in my clients. I'm curious what your thoughts are around oxalates. Yeah. So oxalates have theoretical potential benefit for binding toxins, namely heavy metals. So I, I find it interesting in the functional medicine community that things like activated charcoal or even like EDTA or cupramine, things like this, chelators and binders of toxins are very popular, yet sometimes oxalates are completely demonized. That being said, most people are consuming too many oxalates, just like most people are consuming too many calories for their, for how much cal calories they're burned or conversely, they don't burn enough calories, but you know, it's gonna have another corollary discussion. But yeah, finding an amount of oxalates that you're able to intake Many people, due to a variety of different circumstances, do not excrete these. Dehydration is the number one cause. So if you're dehydrated, then oxalates can build up in the form of crystals in the kidney. 90% of the time, those crystals are calcium oxalate crystals, which is one of the most common forms of kidney stones. You can also see this on your urinalysis test that you get at your doctor. So there's many strategies. The easiest one is to hydrate more. But there are many different strategies to be able to excrete your oxalates more so that you do not have to severely restrict them. And are there any natural ways of excreting oxalates? Yeah. Other than hydrating well, there is a few different like light diuretics, if you will, that you can take, but there's various pros and cons of them. So I would consider those natural ways. There's obviously medications for everything. So there's a supplement for everything and a medication for everything. And then a lifestyle intervention for everything as well. So there's no way to dissolve the crystals in the kidneys? Not that I know of. There's probably been research on it, but I've never really dug into that. If you see crystals in your urinalysis, it does not mean that there needs to be ways to dissolve crystals in the kidneys. If there is like a clinically noticeable, if you do a diagnostic imaging study, like an x-ray or a, a CT stone protocol, and you see that there's a stone there, if it's smaller than a few, or it's, if it's smaller than several millimeters, let's say it's six millimeters, 
Then there are medications that we essentially give to dilate the tubes to help you pee them out. But if they're bigger than certainly a centimeter, then oftentimes um, we have to use sound waves called lithotripsy. And that lithotripsy, the sound waves does break them up. It's just not really something that that you take. And then you just excrete them. Okay, that's interesting. So let's talk about exercise. I've heard you talk about exercise before, and I've heard you say that there's no great time to exercise. It's just important to get exercise in general, because most people don't exercise enough and move their bodies. So talk to me about that pillar in the six pillars. Yeah, definitely. I kind of separate it to anaerobic and aerobic exercise, but there's, it's not there's a spectrum, a full spectrum, and the different zones of aerobic exercise are all important for different reasons. A lot of the importance of resistance training is actually in prevention of pain because your muscles are strong enough to carry you throughout the day and also in maintaining your metabolic rate. So your lean body mass is higher. Um, you're less likely to have a low or a slow metabolism. So think of the extreme example, a bodybuilder is able to stay relatively lean, even some natural bodybuilders, and eat 3,000, 4,000 calories per day. So it's a great anti-aging intervention on top of that. It prevents sarcopenia, which is low muscle mass with age. It also helps prevent osteoporosis as it's a form of weight-bearing. Most exercise is weight-bearing exercise. So even walking is weight-bearing exercise. And that is one of the best things you can do for prevention of osteoporosis. Is walking. Fantastic. I walk every day. And as, and I'm now 46 and I've put more emphasis on versus hit workouts or anything like that, more emphasis on weight training because of the muscle decline that happens. Would you say that that's, as we get older, that tends to be one of the more important forms of working out is to keep muscle mass going? Absolutely. Weight training is more and more important as you age. Sometimes I joke that whatever people in your age group and people in like similar demographics to you are doing, just do the opposite. <laughs> for example, if there's a, a 40 year old female, a lot of times they run and cycle and that's great and do no weight training. And a lot of times they're on a, a low protein diet. Mm -hmm. and sometimes that needs switched. If you look at, let's say uh, your typical 40 year old male, then oftentimes they're trying to bulk up and perhaps they have a bit extra body fat. And they do no cardiovascular exercise, but too much resistance training. And maybe the, everyone just needs to switch lifestyles. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I, I've started my life being more of a runner and, you know, trail runner and, and not yoga really. And then at this point in my life, I've definitely shifted more into walking and weight training to just kind of, and with intermittent sprints here and there just for, to get that higher cardiovascular. But I don't know. I mean, I think the anti-aging thing is just starting to, get really loud in the health world where everybody's talking about it and following Dr. Sinclair and really looking at yeah. how do we not just live longer, but live well longer. You know, I think hold off disease and not have that be part of the health story. And the Blue Zone people are really an incredible example of people that live long and well with community as well. What are your thoughts uh, about community for the wellness, for a human's wellness? Yeah, I certainly think community is very important as a part of social health. So that would kind of go along with the studies that have been done on Okinawa. So there's a small island named Okinawa. It's in the Pacific. There's a battle there in World War II. But anyway, the average person lives very long. I don't know exactly how long, 
but I believe they have the highest percentage of centenarians or people who live to age 100. And the social aspect of it was one of the things that's talked about in many of the studies that have been done. So obviously they've looked at the diet, they looked at the rate of obesity, they've looked at the rate of activity, and they've looked at caloric restriction as well, but they've also looked at the social aspect. So you can take someone away from that social niche, really, it's like an ecological niche almost on that island, separated from the rest of the world. And their likelihood to live to 100 is significantly less. And my understanding, they don't do any like working out per se. They just are physically active where they ride their bikes and they do garden and they do more physical everyday activities versus, you know, whereas I feel like we sit all day and then we're like, okay, now it's time to go work out, you know, versus actually just moving around life. I mean, do you think that has a relevance to why they live so long that they're not putting their body under incredible stress like we tend to do as humans running marathons and um, ultra marathons and stuff like that. Does that, is there a point of like the benefit, you're no longer getting the benefit from working out, I guess is what I'm curious about. Yeah, it's probably a, a hard point to reach. Elite athletes might reach that point, but clinically it's likely a negligible difference as far as your lifespan. When people get to that point of elite athletics, what is most likely making the biggest difference is use of performance enhancing substances or also compensatory lifestyle modifications. For example, runners are disproportionately likely to consume significantly more alcohol. Things like that are more likely to affect like outcomes for health span specifically. That's amazing data right there. So let's talk about true preventative medicine. I would love to hear your definition of what that is. Medicine before any pathology can be diagnosed. So it's pretty common for people to go to the doctor and even if they don't have any diagnosed conditions, they likely have something that can be optimized and prevented. So if you look at the goals of Healthy People 2030, which is a government initiative in the United States, one of the goals is to decrease the incidence of undiagnosed prediabetes. So if people that aren't diabetic right now, over 39% of non-diabetics unknowingly have prediabetes. And the goal is to decrease that to 35%. I would love that to go to 0%, but uh, it's good that we have that true preventative medicine is not only finding those pathologies, but even finding out if you have a touch of insulin resistance before prediabetes and finding things as early as possible. It's similar to getting an oil change on your car. I saw a video from the Mayo Clinic. And I do go to the Mayo Clinic for a lot of my information. There's excellent articles in a series called the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. But they had a video that talked about the best cancer prevention. And they talked about mammograms and colonoscopies. And I thought to myself, this is great because it's preventing, like colonoscopies are preventing cancer, but mammograms really aren't preventing cancer, they're just detecting cancer. So the treatment of obesity, nicotine use, and things like that, I would see that as a true cancer prevention. When somebody comes to you and they say something isn't right, I have these symptoms, and you run a bunch of labs and nothing comes back out of the ordinary, what are your thoughts on a person like that? Because I, I hear that a lot from my clients where they come to me and they're like, you know, they'll upload their labs. I'll have a look at them. I'll ask them what their doctor said. They're like, 
they they say that we don't I don't need to do anything, maybe see a therapist. What are your thoughts on that client? And have you seen that client? Yes, I've seen that client. In many of those cases, the labs that are run are your routine panel that you get if you go to your primary care provider. So it's a lipid panel with a calculated LDL, no ApoB, no lipoprotein A. It's probably a fasted triglyceride. You know, maybe you eat at midnight every night. Maybe you have night eating syndrome and 7 a.m. every morning, but you fast for 12 or 14 hours the night before. It's hard to say if that triglyceride is usually your, at your normal level. But anyway, in addition to that, there's normally a CBC and there's normally a CMP. And those might be the only labs that you get. So most of the time, they just didn't run enough labs to actually find what it is. And that's not necessarily the fault of the healthcare provider. There's a lot of really good MDs, DOs, NPs, and PAs out there. And they would be willing to run more labs if they were covered more easily. That's one of the limitations in a fee-for-service model where there's only, that's basically all you can get without paying out of pocket. And then if you pay out of pocket, you pay a disproportionately high amount, usually 10 times the cost of what it actually takes to get. So that's one unethical thing about the healthcare system that I think all sides are trying to fix, but there, there's just a weird stalemate where it's really hard to get preventative medicine labs from your primary care provider. And I would argue that those are probably one of the most important that a labs that you get. I Before I got really sick, I was seeing really great doctors for my checkup every year. And it was really interesting that when I was healthy, every everything was fine. But as soon as I got sick, nobody really knew what to do or what labs to run. And I was like, wait a minute, I've been seeing you guys for years. You're, su- you know, you're supposed to know. And it was this mass confusion. And I went on a an Easter egg hunt to try to figure out what, what was going on. Because with autoimmune disorders, a lot of the time, it's a bunch of these random symptoms that don't make sense until suddenly they do. And it was kind of an interesting falling apart to come back together. But anyway, yeah, I was really curious about that. And I'm interested to see when when that's going to be part of the conversation of getting labs, not just once a year, a glimpse at what's going on in your blood in that moment in time. So once a year almost feels like not enough, in my opinion. And love your thoughts on that. Yeah. Lab testing is pretty individualized. If you think about the average person, the average person has metabolic syndrome. And the average person has something, some sort of pathology with their lipids as well. And the average person has a CRP that's over one. So when you're doing a screening test, you're trying to have a a rate where you find something that rationalizes running this lab often. For example, in... Many countries in Eastern Asia, I believe Japan and perhaps Thailand or Vietnam, they do endoscopy, except instead of screening for colon cancer, they screen for stomach cancer and esophageal cancer by doing EGDs as their endoscopy. And that's because the consumption of smoked meats with nitrates and such in it, they have higher rates. So it should be the same thing for other tests as well. Run the test that you think is going to be positive most of the time. So three to six months for the average person is needed, but as many health coaches or bodybuilding coaches or coaches of elite athletes point out, some people need it even more frequently. 
especially if they're on protocols with supplements and medications and such. And some people don't need it that frequently. So uh, it's a fairly individualized thing. The average person twice a year seems like a pretty safe go-to for the majority of people. I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and that's what I try to encourage my clients to do is, is if they can, because it'll be out of pocket that, you know, healthcare is not going to cover it. But if you can get labs twice a year, it just, and especially as we get older, as I get older, I see the value of knowing what's going on in the, you know, in, on the inside. Diet versus lifestyle change. And what are your favorite tips? Yeah, favorite tips. And by the way, that one of the ways I explain lifestyle changes in general is a lifestyle change is going to be more powerful than any medication or supplement. If you have something that you want to optimize or if you have a pathology, it's kind of like you get stuck in quicksand and you do have to dig yourself out. But sometimes if you're stuck deeply, then you need a tool at that point. Otherwise, the more you try to get out, the more stuck you will get. So supplements and even little uh, mini lifestyle changes can be like tools to get you out. As far as diet tips, biofeedback is very helpful. Chronometer is quite helpful as well. It's basically my fitness pal with micronutrients and vitamins. So that can be helpful. And whoever you live with, whether it's a roommate or a partner or a wife and kids, thinking about a diet plan that includes all of you I found that it's particularly difficult, kind of probably impossible. Somebody might be able to prove me out, prove me wrong, but uh, pretty much impossible to be on a drastically different diet plan than the rest of the people that you live with. Yeah, I a lot of my clientele are people who are working on their hormones or gut health, and they end up on a very different protocol with me than the rest of their family. And that is the biggest uphill battle because if you're sitting and eating a bunch of whole foods and you're off alcohol and caffeine and sugar. And then in your family, they're eating ice cream and going out for drinks. You know, it's, it's really, it's really, I mean, we are communal is the bottom line. And so if you're in a group of people and everybody's eating unhealthy, most likely you won't eat as healthy when you're with that group of people, right? It's so it's, it's, yeah, I see it a lot. And I see that the people who succeed and are able to make these big leaps and changes in their hormonal health and, and gut health are the ones who their partners, even if they don't get on the protocol 100% with them, they're sharing similarities in it. And, and also just getting rid of the junk food in the house so that they can actually succeed. Because in a weak moment, you know, emotionally upset or, PMS or whatever, you're just like, give me all the chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Are there reasons why women crave chocolate and, and stuff like that right before their cycles? Is this, a is this an answer that you know? I'm not sure. Chocolate's an interesting one because it has a lot of polyphenols and antioxidants in it. Dark chocolate specifically has a lot of theobromine mm. and theobromines and a lot of fat burners, which are really just like polysis agents. Mm. So fat burners aren't going to make you like lose more weight or decrease your um, appetite, but they could help chop up, like activate fats that's from adipose cells or fat cells from around the body. But not that I know of that they specifically crave chocolate. Carbs, chocolate, sugar in general. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, general. comfort food, yeah. So I am obsessed with genetic testing. I did 23andMe when it first came out and 
it was kind of cryptic to me a little bit. And then I did a second round of genetic testing recently. But when I was young, I was never, I was hungry all the time. And as an adult, hungry all the time. And as a older adult, hungry all the time. And finally, I had genetic testing done and it pointed out the fact that I overproduced ghrelin. And I was like, because 23 and me was basically pointed out that I should be a good 30 pounds heavier based on my genetics. But I was like, what does that mean? I'm sure that could mean a lot of things. And then this other testing was like, you overproduce ghrelin. So if you start your day with fiber, you're less hungry the rest of the day. And I've been doing that for the last nine, 10 years. And it's true. If I start my day with a lot of fiber, vegetables, legumes, whatever, I'm not hungry all day. So I don't tend to overeat because my ghrelin is, you know, the fiber helps out with the ghrelin. I don't understand all the reasons why, but it's to me, genetic testing, not just for that, but it confirms something that I knew in myself, which is why am I hungry all the time? It doesn't matter if I just eat a big meal, I'm still hungry. It's crazy. And 23 and me was like, you know, you're, you're going to struggle with weight your whole life. And I was like, not that I have fiber, I'm not anymore, but I'm curious what your, and how you use genetic testing in your practice and how does that help guide your, how you work with your, with your patient? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of genetic testing as well. There's a few different types. So there's your single nucleotide polymorphism testing, SNP. And then there's your specialized genetic testing. A lot of these specialized tests will sequence the full gene of several genes. For example, if they're concerned for osteogenesis imperfecta or Ehlers-Danlos, EDS, then they'll sequence uh, a bunch of different genes like a COL1A, COL2A, and they'll do a full sequence to basically read the entire chapter of that book instead of just one letter in one word. Mm -hmm. So, and then you also have full exome sequencing, which is every gene that encodes for a protein. And they sequence all of that instead of just one polymorphism. So that's kind of like a, a, it's a bit of a luxury test, but it's nice because then you will always have it as we discover new things. And there's also mitochondrial sequencing to see what mitochondria you inherited from your mother. Wow. So, um, there's a bunch of different ones. Some interesting ones that have to do with hunger and satiety. Is you can look at the sensitivity of your IGF-1 receptors, and then also your different genes for the IGF-1 binding peptides, specifically IGF binding peptide 3. It's basically the protein that holds onto your IGF-1, gives it a longer half-life, and also makes it less active. And the receptor can be different levels of sensitivity, kind of like your androgen receptor as well. Maybe that leads to more positive feedback mechanisms with more ghrelin over time, perhaps not. You also have a gene for a different endogenous peptide known as leptin. And leptin also has to do with a lot of satiety. You can kind of think of it as a bit of an opposite to ghrelin. So there's definitely a homeostasis between those two, just like there is a, an indirect homeostasis between dopamine and serotonin. Amazing. And so are these all tests that you run in your office if somebody is, is wanting the, the Cadillac? <laughs> yeah, not for all of them, but uh, the most expensive option is around $1,000 for people extremely interested in genetic tests. Jumping straight to that option is reasonable because by the time you get like a 23andMe or a self-decode or an Ancestry, there's a, there's a gazillion of them. They all use pretty much the same third party to do the actual sequencing. Mm. And the sequencing is usually like an RT-PCR. So it's, it's, you know, genomic sequencing 
and they're looking at each little part of it. So it's significantly more expensive if you're going to read a whole book as opposed to just a couple, just select a couple words and only mm-hmm. read those words or those letters in those words. However, <laughs> if you get something like a self-decode or whatever, a lot of them have subscriptions. And it's like, well, that's not particularly useful because then you're paying for a subscription instead of a, like a doctor that can actually advise you on these from a clinically significant endpoint. There's a big difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. And then there's also things like Prometheus that you can run things through. Can't remember if that was Rhonda Patrick's service or not, but Prometheus is a good one. It's just especially scientific. So sometimes it's helpful to bring things kind of down into layman's terms. That's the nice thing about genomics. You can go as far down the rabbit hole as you want to, but that's also the difficult thing about it. Because if you look at it, then like if you, if you look at your genes, you're going to find something that you think is concerning, which can make you think about it. And then you kind of take on uh, what I call the sick role. And just thinking that there might be something wrong with you, even though there's advantages and disadvantages to whatever you find in your genetic testing, that can be worrisome. So that's why a lot of states put restrictions on how you order and the different informed consent that you give patients before ordering genetic tests. I probably fall into an interesting category because I I love knowing my strengths and weaknesses. Because if I know my weaknesses, I feel like I can balance it with lifestyle, right? To not pull the trigger on these genetic factors. So if I know things, then I balance it versus worrying about it because there's nothing I can do about it anyway, ultimately, except for care for myself properly, right? Yeah, I agree 100%. There's a couple interesting questions that I ask people sometimes to tell what category they fall into. One of them is if you have a terminal cancer where you know for sure you're going to pass away in 10 years, you're not going to suffer anything, but you're just going to pass away in 10 years. You have a terminal disease. Let's say it's cancer. When would you want to know? And some people want to know right away. I want to know right away, but it's a really hard question to answer. And a lot of people might not be able to say right now for sure. So if you're listening and think about that question, and it'll tell you where on the spectrum you are. Another corollary for social interaction or social health is you have two friends, your two best friends. You're at a cliff and one of them slips and is falling off the cliff. Would you want to know if, let's say, your friend had a chance to help them and they chose not to and they fell off? And in hindsight, somehow you knew that this friend would have survived if your other friend had helped them. But would you want to know that the friend would have survived or would you not want to know that? Because if you know it, then perhaps it ruins your relationship with the surviving friend. If you don't know it, then you can salvage that relationship. But there's obviously a chance that something similar could happen between you. Well, not something similar to that weird scenario, but (laughs) yeah. Would you want to know about, I guess, the insidious intent of a very close friend at the cost of the friendship? That's an interesting question. I, again, probably land into the category of I'd want to know. I'd want to know because then with truth of, of a scenario, I can make real choices. Not knowing, I mean, I, I know that they say ignorance is bliss, and I'm sure 
It is. I'm just not geared that way. Where I'm, if if I did the genetic testing, so you can do genetic testing and see if you're going to get cancer and potentially die. Can you can you see that in genetic testing? No, not really. Okay. Yeah, you you can know some of your predispositions. It's quite rare to have a very strong cancer predisposition. For example, okay. like Lee Fermini syndrome, which I believe is a P53 knockout. So there's some rare ones, Lynch syndrome, and those you would already usually kind of know with family history, those are very rare to find. Um, okay. But it, it's microcosms of that same question. For example, a very slight, let's say a very slight protein S deficiency. Would you want to know? Would you not want to know? It's actually very unlikely to ever cause a clinically significant blood clot, but it's possible. So slight tendencies like that are sometimes the hardest to deal with because then at that point, if you find out that you have it, well, you know, obviously you can like optimize and moderate your vitamin K consumption, vitamin K1 and K2. But past that, you think about, well, do you go on an aspirin or a more hardcore blood thinner? There's antiplatelets, there's anticoagulants. Do you go on those? Probably not for something like a protein S, unless perhaps you're pregnant and have other predispositions. But it, it's hard questions to answer. It is. And I know, I definitely know it's not for everybody to, to know. I think to me, it informs. And I guess before this technology, we just wouldn't know. We would live our lives and not have this conversation even on the table. But as we advance as humans, we have this incredible responsibility, if we choose to, to get it, to, to know what our genetic weaknesses potentially are, which may never trigger, right? You can live an entire life and not trigger a lot of the genetic factors, but I think that's epigenetics. I would love to talk about, well, let's just run through some unexplained infertility and women's hormones and how to optimize women's hormones. You and I spoke earlier today about hair thinning in premenopausal women. Talk to me about this. Yeah. To understand women's hormones, there's different stages. So very early on in a female's life, their adrenal glands haven't kicked in. This is usually before age nine or so, sometimes even before age eight. And their SHBG is generally pretty high. Adrenal glands kick in, that's adrenarchy. So you start to have more dehydroepiandrosterone or DHEA. After that happens, you have menarche. Estrogen and also specifically something that hits a receptor in the hypothalamus. It's similar to a peptide that's under investigation known as kispeptin. They're looking at it and its role essentially in precocious puberty. So sometimes when that hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis kicks in too early, you can have precocious puberty or early puberty, early menarche, which is the first period. And then after that, of course, you start your menstrual cycles. So during the menstrual cycle, you actually have higher levels of testosterone than estrogen, milligram per milligram, concentration per concentration, and much, much higher DHEA. So DHEA is kind of like the pawns on the chessboard. Depending on your SHBG, that very strongly binds androgens. So people with PCOS and also insulin resistance tend to have lower SHBGs. And that's one of the more common phenomenon we see. So high SHBG is not necessarily bad. That's one of the reasons why many people are on contraceptives is that increases SHBG. 
and it obviously does a lot of other things as well. During the perimenopausal time, estrogen and progesterone, which were previously hopefully in a pretty balanced ratio, the progestogens start to drop and the estrogens remain relatively high in most people. So that's why you see a lot of people put on progestogens like pregnenolone or even progesterone in many different forms around the time of menopause. Progesterone itself in vitro, if you look at the estrogen receptor on a cell, then progesterone can help resensitize the receptor. We don't know how clinically significant this is. Progesterone has definitely been looked at even topically for hair loss prevention, but it's definitely not the only component of the puzzle. The other thing to keep in mind is what your androgens are doing during this whole time as well. Some women, especially women with few CAG repeats on their androgen receptor gene are particularly prone to androgenic alopecia, so even male pattern baldness. And if this is the case, then you respond much, much better to any anti-androgenic therapy. So whether it's spironolactone, which is kind of classically the go-to, ketoconazole, which is a weak anti-androgen, clascoderone, or when Levi, and they're developing a foam for this as well, is a topical anti-androgen, kind of like RU58841. And then there's also 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, which inhibit the conversion of um, testosterone to dihydrotestosterone, which is very androgenic. It's interesting if you look at the genetics of someone with PCOS, their active copy, so their unmethylated copy of the androgen receptor gene is almost always the one that is more sensitive that has fewer repeats. There's also a few different other tests that you can do. I think they're called TRICA tests and you can see how prone you are to these various things. Now, all of that notwithstanding, that's like a lot of complicated information it in is. the packet. You also have more telogen effluvium because this is also a common age where thyroid disorders and iron deficiency anemia arises. Whether it's athlete's anemia from red blood cells essentially exploding in the feet, or whether it's just like a lifetime of menstrual periods, low iron frequently causes telogen effluvium. The hair loss after a pregnancy in the postpartum period is a type of telogen effluvium, postpartum telogen effluvium. And then the hair comes back. I do remember that after my daughters were born, losing all this hair and just being like, what is happening? And they're like, don't worry, it's going to be fine. And you're like, is it, is it going to be fine? And, and it usually is fine. I mean, there, I have met women who go through that phase and don't get the hair back, which is very, really upsetting. But so what test would women get if they are, you know, experiencing PCOS and if they want and hair loss, what what can they do to start being proactive about that? If they don't want to go on a medication, what are the natural things they can take? The test to get would be test for insulin resistance, specifically for PCOS and for androgen dominance. There is some companies that have like a comprehensive hormone panel specifically for females and specifically for hair loss. And at some point I'll post some, I get asked the question, like, what's my recommended panel quite often. At some point I'll post those on my website, but getting individualized tests is obviously, if you have a doctor or a practitioner that you can talk to about this, individualized testing is great as well. That's a good way to start as far as safe interventions. If it's androgenic and it sometimes it's hard to tell. So, and some people have both as well, and you've had the testing then obviously follow your healthcare provider's advice 
for a lot of women, there's topical spironolactone, topical ketoconazole. Mm. There's a lot of topicals mm. that are safe that are not going to have as many anti-androgenic effects throughout the body. As far as telogen effluvium, you would just have to address the cause in that case. Specifically with iron, if you're perimenopause, just keep in mind if you're too low right now, you can fairly quickly become too high even within a few years mm. of menopause. The iron levels? Mm-hmm. The test to check for that would be called ferritin. Okay. And so how safe are hormone replacement therapies for women these days? I've read a lot about potentials for cancer. I've also read that if you are tracking your hormones and you see where they are naturally, that you match them for the least side effect or risk of cancer. What are your thoughts around hormone replacement? Hormone replacement therapies for women, depending on the person, can be unsafe. There's some people and the risks just far outweigh the benefits. And there's other things that can be done naturally as many people are doing a great job talking about natural therapies for perimenopause and menopause. And in some cases, it's actually safer to go on hormone replacement than to not. A classic case of this is called POI or premature ovarian insufficiency. And with this, there could be a lady, a female who is 30 and who already has ceased ovarian function. And it's safer for her due to less osteoporosis and less cardiovascular disease, specifically less plaque in the arteries. If she starts the hormones right away as she's, you know, as the function has ceased. So the earlier you start it, usually the more benefit it is. The later you start it, it's usually more risk with less benefit. So it's, It's very, very highly individualized. I don't think that every female should be on hormone replacement, certainly. If there was one thing that I would say for every female to consider is keep in mind what your androgenic function is. So whether it's testing your free and total testosterone, test it with liquid chromatography tandem mass spec, because the lower your testosterone, the less accurate immunoassays are. And you don't necessarily have to remember that. Eventually I'll post it, but it usually says LCMS or equilibrium dialysis by the side instead of immunoassay. My understanding is that for women, we only make progesterone two times, one in the ovulatory phase and two when we're pregnant. If you're going through menopause and you're losing, your, your ovaries are giving up the ghost, what role does progesterone play in a menopausal woman moving forward? After menopause, women only make progesterone from their adrenal glands. I believe it's two milligrams a day. Don't quote me on that exactly, but I believe it's two milligrams a day of progesterone that women make in the adrenals. So the adrenals have several different areas. They obviously have the zona reticularis where they make kind of like their adrenal steroids. They make dehydroepiandrosterone, cortisol. And that's kind of where like the adrenal fatigue is looked at the most. However, in their adrenals in general, they do make some degree of progesterone. Some of that's converted to pregnenolone, and some of that is reduced into either uh, 5-alpha, 3-alpha progesterone or 3-alpha progesterone, which are also known as neurosteroids. So that's where you see some of the vasomotor phenomenon of menopause arise, where you have trouble sleeping and hot flashes. 
And then what about estrogen as well and testosterone? And is is there a conversion going on from testosterone to estrogen ultimately in the female body through menopause? Because I have a lot, I work with a lot of older women who get through menopause just fine and they feel fine and there's none of the, you know, feeling dry and and losing all the hair and, you know, all of the horrible things and hot flashes. They just get through it perfectly fine. And then other women who talk about having adrenal burnout get through have a much harder time going through it i'm curious your thoughts there yeah so the estrogen that is formed via the conversion of testosterone to estrogen it's called peripheral estrogen and the enzyme is called aromatase so some people may have heard of aromatase inhibitors some people take them after having a cancer like a breast cancer or an estrogen sensitive cancer because even if they're not making estradiol they're still converting testosterone to estradiol. DHEA, again, that pod on that chessboard at a very high level, has a lot of trickle down, almost like a cascade of a waterfall where it converts to estrogen. There's a lot of things that can upregulate aromatase. Alcohol is certainly one of them. And having a high body fat is another one. Having a high calorie intake meal or a cheat meal. So uh, mukbang or whatever they're called, that's probably <laughs> going to upregulate aromatase a lot. So in general, anything that you do on the weekend that's fun, it's probably going to upregulate aromatase quite a bit and cause that imbalance. Interesting. So are there things that we, I'll just talk from my age group because I'm sitting in it right now, that 46. Is there things that we can optimize in our diet and lifestyle to have the best chance of getting through menopause and not needing hormone replacement to have a balanced i mean the thing that i see is women who start to look like men why the whiskers is that like is the conversion from testosterone to estrogen just not happening and there's more masculine features like what what can we do to prevent looking like a man in an older age there's been a lot of studies done on this a lot of them have been done on phytoestrogens. So the estrogens that you get in cruciferous vegetables or even from soy or edamame, perhaps they mildly help, but it really depends on how sensitive you are to those phytoestrogens. Mm. A lot of it comes down to what your SHBG is. So if you're very insulin resistant or if you have you know, a lot of androgen binding to your liver, when an androgen binds to your liver, it causes decreased SHBG output. SHBG is the protein that binds up both your androgens and estrogens, but it very strongly binds androgens, especially DHT, and pretty weakly binds estrogens like estradiol. It's a half-life of about a week. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you have androgen dominance, your SHBG is going to be even lower and you're going to have even more active androgens binding to the androgen receptor whether it's in your chin or whether it's in your hairline or whether it's in the sebum glands, altering uh, production of sebum and causing cystic acne and such, mm. that's going to have an effect. Another effect is the level of IGF-1. Some people who consume more dairy and red meat have a disproportionate spike in IGF-1 after that. So IGF-1 is increased by both insulin and growth hormone. So again, there's peripheral and there's also centrally acting IGF-1. That also leads to things like cystic acne. There, you, you don't necessarily want a high, GF, high IGF-1. You want a high activity of the good part of IGF-1. 
if so that it's, makes sense. It's complicated then. I, I have a lot of clients with cystic acne and I was curious about your thoughts around uh, cystic mm-hmm. acne and, and what do you look at in your practice or labs do you look at when somebody comes in and they have cystic acne and they don't want to be on spironolactone or something for it? Yeah, full insulin resistance and hormone workup panel. Mm-hmm. Some people, if it's just a super high IGF-1, maybe they're a keto dieter, you can give them topical metformin and it improves. Some people who have very high cell turnover and they're always eating inflammatory foods, you can put them on topical rapamune, which is kind of like rapamycin, and it improves as well. So there's a lot of different things that work for acne. For a lot of people, it does come down to drying agents to dry out sebum. And those are your vitamin A derivatives or retinoids. Your Mm -hmm. vitamin A, you have your carotenoids, you know, Mm -hmm. like orange dry from carrots and also your retinoids. And a lot of times topical retinoids do help, especially for very oily dermatotype skins. And then topical antiandrogens or even oral antiandrogens like spironolactone are good choices in many cases. I always talk about the, the interventions with the potentially least side effects first. So sometimes when I do podcasts and such, I don't mention things like spironolactone or finasteride. And I do have plenty of patients that I have on spironolactone and finasteride that, that need it. So sometimes I get that question. So it's pretty individualized, but obviously skincare plays a big component, but hormones play a big component as well. And what do you do when you run a full hormone panel and somebody's sitting in front of you with really bad cystic acne and everything's coming back on paper looking normal? Because I hear that a lot where they're like, unique, we've run my panels, they look normal, but I have this explosion happening on my face. Like what's going on? Yeah. Sometimes I'll look at their sensitivity to androgens in general. So maybe their androgen receptor gene is just very active. And that is actually a good opportunity to follow the algorithm. And the general algorithm is topical retinoid, topical antibiotic, oral antibiotic, like doxycycline, minocycline, cesara is a new one. And then oral retinoid, which is basically, so you have isotretinoin, which is Accutane at the bottom of the algorithm. And then you have tretinoin which is kind of like the topical version of it, but you also have adapalene, deferrin, all these other drying agents or vitamin A derivatives. So in those cases, I would just transform to robot doctor and <laughs> algorithm. Are there any diet and lifestyle suggestions you would make to somebody who's, who's coming with cystic acne? Yeah, so if they have a really oily skin and they're taking very hot showers, that can lead to a domino effect where the hot mm. shower increases the sebum production in the skin. If they're always using chapstick and they have a horrible with like rebound from the chapstick, then it can do the same thing. It can, it can cause the lips to have decreased production of natural lubricants. A friction-based product is great. Sometimes I'll recommend the CeraVe products. The ceramides have some evidence that they help as a protectant, especially if perhaps someone in Los Angeles is exposed to more particles and dust. Certainly someone living in like Kathmandu or Delhi or something like that. There is a lot of environmental particles that can interact. Looking at the microbiome can potentially help as well. There are certain strains of bacteria that are more likely to infect and cause that inflammatory acne. And for those cases, facial scrubs are even more important in addition to the potential topical antibiotics. Fascinating. There, there's a very rare, but it does show up in my practice, the hemochromatosis. Yeah. What are your, what do you, how do you approach? I mean, fascinating. I have friends, I've had a friend in my life who just gave blood and that's how they, an excess of of iron basically. And that's how they 
maintain their life is just by giving blood periodically. What are your, what are your thoughts about why does that even exist? Yeah, it's another one of those things, almost like uh, coagulopathy is almost like sickle cell, where it does convey a benefit as well. If you have hemochromatosis, you're probably less likely to bleed out because you have, you're less likely to become iron deficient. So if you're in an environment where you're not able to get a lot of iron or vitamin C, and you're more likely to, let's say two people have a postpartum hemorrhage 2000 years ago in Northern Europe, and maybe they have good access to iron, but not vitamin C. The one that has hemochromatosis is less likely to have iron deficiency and uh, anemia and more likely to survive. So if you look at women that are about to deliver, if they have a hemoglobin of less than 10, which is pretty low, they're going to be more likely to need a blood transfusion after delivery. We didn't have blood transfusions a thousand years ago that I know of. <laughs> I'm curious also, like, what is the cause when somebody has hemochromatosis that they're producing all of that iron? And a lot of the dietary restrictions are to not eat iron-rich foods. And, and also let blood every few months or whatever. A lot of times I will have those patients donate blood. Iron can build up in the brain in what's called hemosiderin deposits, and it can lead to dysfunction of the brain cells, a higher chance of neurodegenerative disease. Dietary recommendations. Some people will restrict iron. One thing that's particularly important is the level of estrogen. So estrogen affects something called hepcidin. So estrogen inhibits hepcidin, which inhibits iron. Another way to think of this is estrogen increases the uptake of iron. So if someone has, let's say, obesity, or if somebody's on estrogen, or if somebody's on testosterone, whether it's a male or a female, that's going to also concurrently increase estrogen and increase the uptake of iron. Wow. So the uptake of iron itself might be more important. Also, instead of just looking at the iron content of the food, it's important to see if it's bioavailable and or heme iron. Heme iron, that's where the name for hemoglobin comes in because of the four different porphyrin rings with iron in the middle. The hemoglobin molecule on the red blood cell, if it has more iron in the rings, then it can carry more oxygen. So a lot of people with hemochromatosis are also prone to having high hemoglobin, especially when they're on uh, hormone replacement. They're at risk of thick blood. And in very severe cases, this can increase the risk of a stroke. So if you're on hormone replacement and there is this risk of, of thick blood and iron, what do you, do you have a woman do if she's on hormone replacement to counterbalance that? The first thing I look at is if the patient has sleep apnea, because that's also mm -hmm. another huge risk factor that many different people have. And there's many different things that you can do for sleep apnea other than just a full face CPAP Darth Vader style. <laughs> Sexy. <laughs> yeah. So I look for that first. Next, I check to see what their estrogen and also if they're on testosterone, their testosterone levels, or even if they're naturally optimized and I still check, look at the lifestyle to see if there's anything that we can do. Perhaps we can alter something just a touch like a calcium deglucurate to help with estrogen dominance. Maybe we even look at something like a Toncat, an estrogen receptor modifier. But oftentimes if their ferritin is routinely running high, by the way, ferritin can be falsely high. It's also an acute phase reactant. So if you're in a state of inflammation or in like a flare of an autoimmune disease or infected, oftentimes ferritin is very high. <laughs> but if it's a truly elevated ferritin, then blood donation is a good thing to do. I think there's a shortage. There is a shortage right now. 
Um, especially I think of O positive and O negative blood. So if it's something that can help, that's a phenomenal thing um, that a lot of patients can do. I want to bring up coffee because I see this phenomenon. And again, you and I chatted about it briefly, where I personally, even though supposedly based on my genetics, I can tolerate a lot of caffeine, but I have noticed both in myself and in my clients that that, and I've heard you say that there isn't a direct impact on hormones, but talk to me about how it could potentially affect us indirectly because I see anxiety in myself when I drink coffee. In my clients, I see an increase of painful periods and anxiety and acne, which I find fascinating. So talk to me about how this could potentially play a role. Yeah. So we can talk about caffeine in general. Coffee does have other benefits other than just the like coffee is obviously not just its caffeine content, but it affects several things in the body. It is a stimulant and it works with adenosine. So it kind of artificially modulates adenosine function, if you will. Dr. Matthew Walker does a much better job of explaining this. He points out that some people are faster metabolizers of caffeine. So I'm sure we all have that friend that has a double espresso at 3 p.m. and it's fine. Dinner, what? Most, yeah, or that. So, <laughs> yeah. and that's another benefit of genetic testing. You can see some of the different polymorphisms for the uh, metabolism of caffeine. So that's one thing to keep in mind. One thing that caffeine consumption kind of reminds me of is daylight savings. So there's obviously like kind of like, the, I, I don't know if controversy is the right word, <laughs> but when you have more sleep, you have less heart attacks acutely. But when you have less sleep, you have more heart attacks with less sleep. So if you look at the combined effect over the entire year, it's kind of a wash. So when you first start caffeine, it can blunt your cortisol response. And what a lot of people rightfully recommend for this is waiting 30 to 60 minutes to have your cup of coffee or your caffeine in the morning, which is a good start. The other thing to keep in mind is if you do this every day for one month, for two months, if you look at that cortisol response, even if you're having your caffeine at the same time, it's not near as big of a response. So you essentially become tolerant to it in both good and bad ways. So you're less likely to have the side effects and less likely to have the benefit from it. Interesting. And you had mentioned something with caffeine and vagal tone. You have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic system. Your parasympathetic is rest or digest. Your sympathetic is fight or flight. So the, if you think about the digestion of things in your gut, the longer you take to rest and digest, in general, the better your absorption. However, you can become more constipated. So that's why the typical stack of like, you know, I need to go to the bathroom in the morning. A cup of coffee definitely helps. Nicotine helps. I do not recommend that in any case. <laughs> and other, other stimulants help as well. For example, even people who take ADHD stimulants find that they, that has cured their constipation. So it, it definitely affects both parasympathetic and sympathetic tone, including the vagus nerve. But if somebody needs, let's just say, if somebody needs coffee to poop, does it not speak to a, a, a maybe a slightly bigger conversation? There? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of clients who come and say, I can't poop without my daily coffee. And I think about that and I'm like, that's an interesting modern dilemma because pooping is part of human life <laughs> like that's yes. people so should not need coffee for anything and 
pooping regularly is very important. I'm not in the camp that thinks all bowel movements are like toxic. I don't think that all poop is toxic. You know, it mm. is a natural part of existence. One analogy that I give sometimes is that your bowel is a fish tank or a tube of fish tanks. And as you go along, the microbiome changes. The silt at the bottom is you want to let that out at regular intervals, probably mm -hmm. once a day, maybe even twice a day, maybe every other day in some cases. Mm -hmm. Faster you let out that silt, you're also letting out your good and bad bacteria. So theoretically, someone who's pooping three or four times a day needs more probiotic input, whether it's from hopefully fermented foods with mm -hmm. prebiotic digestible fiber, or if it's from probiotics and prebiotics themselves. Right. I have people coming to me and saying from the internet, somebody saying that you, ne you need to poop three times a day. And I say to them, I don't believe that is true. Your body is incredibly wise. And if you're putting in good information, it's going to use that information to inform health, but also it's going to get rid of what it doesn't need. So depending on how long your intestines are, you might poop every other day, depending on who you are, correct? Is that a wrong assumption? And as long as it's digested and it looks like a healthy poop, whether it's every day, once a day, twice a day, three times a day, or every other day, that still falls into the realm of healthy is my assumption. Yes, that's true. The official, and I'm not sure which academic society came up with this, but they, for some reason, they have different normals for males and females. So for males, one to two times a day or up to three times a day is normal. For females, <laughs> every other day is normal. I don't know why that's not normal for guys, but I consider every other day normal and I consider twice a day normal as well. Every third day, if you usually go every other day, but sometimes it's there's a two days in between, that's normal for some people, but you just need to watch out for bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO. SIBO. So that there's just that balance of letting out the bad in your tank and filling it back up with good bacteria. My concern for someone who would go three to four times a day is how would you replenish your good bacteria and keep a steady, stable gut microbiome without using probiotics? It'd be hard yeah. to do kimchi and kefir. That's a good, that's a good point. Also, there's, I have a lot of very anxious women when they don't poop one to two times a day, very anxious. And I try to tell them, calm them down. When you poop, is it healthy? You know, obviously SIBO is on the rise. I'm curious your thoughts about that. It is the overgrowth. Some people are trying to treat it with getting enemas all the time. And then I'm really fascinated by that because I'm like, okay, you're, you're washing out your good and bad bacteria on a regular basis. And then we don't really know if you're replenishing it with the right stuff once you do that. What are your thoughts around this practice for SIBO? For most people, it's, it's probably not ideal. The gut microbiome in general, lots of people are talking about it. I know Huberman had a couple different episodes about it, which were excellent. One thing that is, I don't know if it's controversial within functional medicine, but there's a lot of different tests for the gut microbiome. That is a snapshot or a moment in time. So it does change very frequently. But if you are someone that has a very stable schedule of both bowel movements and you have a very steady, stable diet, and you have for several weeks leading up to it, it does give us a pretty stable snapshot in time. So if your diet's all over the place and you're traveling and then you're just constipated and just on antibiotics, really bad time to get a GI map because 
What does that even tell us? Or any gut zoomer test, any of the functional medicine gut microbiome tests, even the lab core, lab core has a gut microbiome test. And they're probably just waiting to order it more until it's more covered. But a good time to order the test will give us a snapshot in time, almost kind of like lipid tests. So people who are just totally against a any sort of gut microbiome map at any time should also be against any test for your cholesterol and triglycerides because that varies just as much. And it is a snapshot. I have people who come to me with a GI map from a year ago and I'm like, it's this is like an ecosystem that's constantly changing and depend on your what you're putting in, your stress. There's so many factors. It's interesting as a person who went through Crohn's disease, people ask me, well, Unique, how many times do you poop a day? And I'm like, I don't know. I just know I'm healthy and I don't pay attention. So I'm not obsessed with it. But you've never met a more upset woman than a constipated woman or one who thinks she's constipated. Okay. Botox, fillers, are these safe? Do they have an implication in our health? The short answer is there is not very good, really long-term data on Botox and fillers. And if you look at people that are getting these that have many, many, many decades left to live, my concern is the immunogenic proteins that are on them. So that's, there's several things in health that are like the ultimate cognitive distance. But one of them is being very scared of immunogenic proteins in certain medications, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then not being scared at all of the immunogenic proteins in Botox because it's natural. You know, a lot of things have proteins that can cause you both to become resistant to it and theoretically to increase your inflammatory markers and impact other systems as well. Think of it, think of your body as a military that reacts to everything. That's your white blood cells, your antibodies, et cetera. And anything that it recognizes as foreign, there's always a chance that that spark will lead to a fire in other systems of your body. So a lot of times that military is occupied with drills in your gut and your mucosal membranes and your skin. And all those biomes do crosstalk to another, each other, just like if you go from a desert to a mountain, there is a transition zone in between those ecological niches. So when you're thinking about uh, Botox, then you are worried that that spark will set off a inflammatory cascade. And you're also just worried that Botox won't ever work for you again. So it's not really preventative Botox. And if you get several years of immunogenic Botox and then nothing else will work. There's two different types. One of them is called Zeomin. And there's another one where they basically chop off the top couple immunogenic proteins. And it's the only, the only molecule that's left is the molecule that relaxes the collagen. So theoretically, that one could be used as preventative Botox, if you will. And using it preventatively does work better. But as I'm sure you are well aware and your clients, if you use other interventions to help with the preservation of your skin and the minimization of pathologic wrinkles, there's better ways to do it. And what, what would you recommend for natural? How do you feel about retinols? You know, it's a vitamin A derivative. Is that a problem being a fat soluble? What do you recommend for women who want to age gracefully without injectables? At low doses, topical retinoids are reasonable, especially for people with very oily skin. I would not recommend oral vitamin A derivatives, oral retinols or retinoids even if they're not. So obviously Accutane is the most harsh one. There's other natural ones that you can take and I do not recommend that. And I also do not recommend vitamin A supplements in general 
because they're correlated with deleterious outcomes. Vitamin A, orally taken supplements. Topical, even if it's absorbed to some degree, if you use them over a small area, for example, parts of your face, that's very reasonable. As you age and your endogenous growth secreting peptides decrease, you tend to have thinner skin. And for some people, it could be reasonable to use things that are bioidentical, like a GHK copper peptide that's usually made by the liver. And as you age, the levels of that that are made by the liver decrease precipitously. It is reasonable to use things like that as sort of a preventative or a transition measure when your body is not making as many of them. You had mentioned things on another podcast about alcohol increases estrogen. Is that through aromatase? I just want to go back to that because I do see a lot of when I'm working with clients on fertility through diet, because that's that is my area of expertise is diet. So I apply diet principles to help with unexplained infertility with incredible results. By the way, I have a lot of people running around with little what they call bean babies, but I pull them off alcohol when they're looking to conceive. Is there ever a time when drinking alcohol and getting that increase of estrogen is a positive thing? There might be. The American Heart Association has different guidelines and they're always thinking about changing them. But a very low consumption of alcohol in some people can potentially decrease the incidence of plaque in the arteries, hmm. possibly due to its action on estrogen, particularly in men and postmenopausal women or just people with low estrogen in general, right? Potentially through the alcohol itself. So a very low amount might be helpful in some circumstances, but if it's a very low amount every single day, even that can lead to immunosuppression. So half a drink a day or one drink a day is not good at all. Three drinks on one day a week would be significantly better than half a drink all the way throughout the week. Also keep in mind that men who are making sperm, which it takes about 60 days to do, should also avoid alcohol for the most part during this time. Amazing. That's great information. And and I'm actually, I saw you post about it and I'm going to share that post a lot because I have a lot of clients who still the misconception is only the woman needs to make diet and lifestyle changes and not the man. So I love that you're bringing that awareness out there. <laughs> yeah. Men are still lucky. They only need to do it for two or three months mm -hmm. as opposed to at least nine months. So mm -hmm. but yeah, there's definitely things from both the male and the female side that should be done for preconception counseling. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all of your incredible wisdom. How do you keep that all up in your brain? I'm just, I just need to know. How does that, that's just like, it's in there. I really enjoy it. So that helps. One analogy that I sometimes say is if anybody has been around a teenager that really loves a video game, they know every single thing about it. So the, the human body is fascinating to me and I really enjoy it. I really get that from you as well. I've met plenty of doctors in my life that I don't get that inspired feeling from. And every time I watch you or hear you on a podcast, I can hear how inspired and I can just hear your mission of wanting to help and wanting to be a part of that. So I appreciate you. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. I hope this helps a lot of people. I hope so too. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. And listening to my conversation with Dr. Kaya Gillette. I hope it helps you in many ways in the conversations you have with your doctors for testing to see if you can get to the root cause of what ails you, because there's nothing worse than fumbling around in the dark without any answers. I've been there. 
If you are seeking diet and lifestyle support, I offer new client conversations, health consults, an online e-course, and coaching packages to support you along your health journey. In my opinion, there is no greater journey than the one of taking personal responsibility for our amazing health. You have so much power in your fork. Wielded well. Thank you.